from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Adi Shankaracharya is often portrayed as the seer who kept the Hindu faith together. There's a 12-foot high statue of the seer at Kedarnath that was unveiled by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Union ministers and BJP leaders have offered prayers at 100 sacred sites located along the route taken by Adi Shankaracharya. But who is Adi Shankaracharya and why is he so important to the Hindu faith? Mythologist and author Devdutt Patnaik is in conversation with my colleague Jairaj Singh and me about what we know about the seer from Kerala. Devdutt also talks about Adi Shankaracharya's travels across India and how he came to occupy such an important position as well as his role in history. Devdutt, why is Adi Shankaracharya such an important figure and why do we have a sudden uh, number of statues being built in his honour? So, um, I think Adi Shankaracharya is, uh, at least as per legend, is someone who sort of uh drove buddhism out of india and reestablished uh, the supremacy of vedic thought and hindu thought and sanatan dharma at least that's the legend and i think that is why um he's become very popular and uh, uh statues are built because he's seen as a un- uh, one who unifies india with a spiritual glue and therefore he's sort of a the unifier of india the sp- unifier of spiritual india and with all talk of akhanda bharat and all that so naturally um, um adi shankaracharya becomes a very important uh historical figure so it's always about you know un- uniting the country with a common philosophy of the vedas and i think adi shankaracharya is seen as a fountain head of that idea Devdutt, how would you place Adi Shankaracharya? Would you call him a philosopher? Would you call him a saint? Um, he is also known to be the reincarnate of um, Shiv. How would you place him? So Adi Shankaracharya plays a very important role in the revival of Vedic thought. Um, in many ways, he's a revolutionary. Uh, we know about him only through hagiographies, which were written several centuries after he, he you know, sort of uh, achieved samadhi. We, one doesn't talk about, uh, you know, holy men dying. We always talk about samadhi. That means they rise above, they voluntarily give up their body and, you know, choose um, uh, to liberate themselves from the mortal world. But... Adi Shankaracharya uh, comes at a time uh, when Hinduism is going through some major transformations. And uh, that is a point that we often forget. He becomes popular around the 13th, 14th century. But he lived around uh, the 7th century. So it's about 1300 years ago. And stories about him come only 700 years ago. and this is a very interesting period in Indian history because uh, temples become important. Hinduism starts getting associated with temples. Before this, temples were not the mainstream uh, idea. We, Although we think temples existed in India for thousands of years, when you read the Dharma Shastras, Dharma Shastras were written around 2000 years ago and they do not value temples. Temples start being valued from the 12th century onwards. So even Shankaracharya's writing, really temples don't figure. And therefore, when we're talking about Shankaracharya, it's very important to understand Indian philosophy, Indian history, that he plays a very 
critical role, almost the the kind of role that Buddha has played, say, two and a half thousand years ago, changing the philosophical uh, landscape of India. Uh, if Buddha changes it two and a half thousand years ago, then about 1300 years ago, Shankaracharya certainly changes uh, uh, the philosophical landscape of India in a dramatic way. And is uh, to him is attributed the revival of Vedic traditions. Uh, although according to many historians uh, who study philosophy, they say at during his time, he doesn't seem to have created a lot of impact. At least people, there is no contemporary record of his work. His value increases much after his life. He becomes really a major cultural figure around the 13th, 14th century. And that's something significant because in 13th, 14th century India, Islam has entered India. Northern part of India is completely controlled by the Sultanate. And all the intellectuals, all the Brahmins are taking refuge in the south, in the Vijayanagar Empire, with the Hoysala kings, the Yadava kings. So they're coming southwards. And as they're coming southwards, this is when the hagiographies are being written of Shankaracharya. So while the hagiography is talking about how Shankaracharya, uh, you know, pushed Buddhism away and introduced Vedism into in, back to the mainstream, I suspect in many ways they're talking about uh, you know the 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 threat of Islam, which has come at the 14th century, and they are these men who are writing the hagiographies are under the patronage of the Vijayanagar kings, who are sort of standing up to the Delhi Sultanate at that time. Uh, for the first time, the word Hindu Dharma was being used. It was never used before as a self-identification. So this is something that we often forget when we're talking about Shankaracharya. Everybody's having this very nice Amar Chitrakatha comic book version of his life, which is really a hagiography, uh, Shankaradik Vijayam written in the 13th, 14th century. We, we don't realize that when he lived, perhaps his concerns were very different and not the concerns of the hagiographer. The one who's writing the hagiography is writing based on his context. But Shankara does do a lot of things, but maybe his world was very different from the world when his story is told. Of course, when we know Shankaracharya, because in the 18th and 19th century, and especially in the 19th century, he becomes a really a big, because uh, Hindu revivalism is happening again, Hindu reformation is happening again. Uh, men like Aurobindo, uh, men like Ra Raja Ram Mohan Roy are talking about Upanishads all the time. And suddenly when you talk of Upanishads, you have to talk of Shankaracharya. He was uncomfortable with rituals. He valued intellect, Jnana Yoga. So he didn't talk much about temples. He did not talk, although he spoke of pilgrimages uh, and you talk of Chardham and all that but he really he's not associated with this temple structures he's not associated with ritualism he rejects ritualism so there is something intellectually appealing about him in the 19th century so when you talk about Shankaracharya you're really talking a little bit about Indian history and I think that's what makes Shankaracharya very fascinating during his lifetime how he's supposed to have in just 32 years visited some of the most important spiritual centers of the time from Kanchi to Kamrup and Kashmir and the Kedar and Badri Dhams, as well as Sringeri, Ujjain, Kashi, Puri, Joshimat. He's supposed to have established the ritual practices. How did he get around, imagine all these cultural differences and language, linguistic differences coming up as he walked from one place to another? First thing we must remember is we have very little 
historical data on Shankaracharya. Everything that we know comes from legends, written, composed centuries after. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, the stories of Jesus come only 100 years after him. Uh, you know, the Gospels were written much after him. In the same way, Shankaracharya's story comes to us several hundred years. Even amongst the vast volume of literature he produced, uh, much of it is supposed to have written by people later attributed to him. Uh, you know, I know the Akhadas of India, you know, the famous Akhadas during Kumbha Mela, the Akhadas, they will always say, we were established by Shankaracharya, who uh, through his, uh, you know, forecasting abilities had, he had sort of foreseen the arrival of Muslims and therefore had set up the Akhadas as a deterrent to future invasions. How true they are because there's no way of historically proving it or disproving it. Across India, you have temples which are associated with Shankaracharya, legends, um, rituals, practices. Everything is Shankaracharya did this, Shankaracharya sat here. Very much like the way we talk about Ram uh, and the Pandavas, right? Across India, all the caves are considered to be Pandavas caves. All the ponds and waterfalls are considered to be uh, where Ram visited. The difference is that Shankaracharya comes from the southern part of India. And Shankaracharya has, is in many ways a historical figure who seems to have impacted the whole subcontinent at least at a psychological level. Whether he actually went to these places, there is very impossible to prove it. But the legends definitely connect him with each and every corner of India. His Digvijaya talks about how he traveled from south to the east to the west uh, to the north, to Kashmir, to the Gangetic Plains. His writings usually talks about the northern part. I mean, he was born in Kerala. He's educated in Madhya Pradesh, Omkareshwar near Narmada. He then proceeds to the Gangetic Plain to Kashi. From there, he goes to the region of Mithila in Bihar. Then he goes to Kamarup. And then he travels. He learns. He's associated with Tantra. He does this Kaya Pravesh and is associated with the king of Kashmir. He goes to Dwarka. This kind of historical spread is uh, after Ramayana. This is the second time we hear of this cultural unity of India. No other character has this kind of an appeal. No one. India has always been a set of fragmented kingdoms. Each kingdom doing his own thing. So we rarely have a kind of a um, figure who sort of um, connects north and south. I mean, Ashoka's uh, empire was still Tungabhadra, which is still Karnataka. Aurangzeb was an invader. He was seen as an invader. He's seen as a conqueror. He's not, he doesn't unite India. He's creating his own empire. But with Shankaracharya, you have this idea of someone uniting. And I think that's the appeal that he has, especially nowadays, you know, where we are talking about Akhanda Bharat and unity of India and the spiritual revivalism of Hinduism. All that, I think, Shankaracharya plays a role because of his, this kind of geographical connection. Can you tell us a little bit about his religious teachings? If for, for a novice, what is it that uh, you learn from his, his text? So Shankaracharya is what uh, his philosophy is called Vedanta. Vedanta is based on the Upanishads. Now, let's look at the historical timeline. Uh, Upanishads are start being composed a few centuries before or around the Buddha, so two and a half thousand years ago. But Buddhism becomes such a force in India that sort of overshadows all other spiritual practices. Brahmins are there, uh, but the Brahmins are doing 
Vedic rituals, which is the yagyas, which is called the karmakanda. And uh, the philosophic it, the side of it really goes towards Buddhism and Jainism. Hinduism is not known for philosophy. Hinduism is known for its rituals. And uh, the Brahmins are known for performing rituals. And clearly there is some kind of... Uh, uh, Kind of, uh, they are on the back foot with the rise of Buddhism, and the Buddhism is getting a lot of royal patronage, mercantile support, and the Brahmins redefine themselves. They redefine themselves by becoming shastris. They write the Dharma Shastras, they write the Artha Shastras, and this is happening somewhere around two thousand years ago, and we are seeing Hinduism transform. The Puranic gods are coming. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva is coming, um, uh, and you can see Hinduism going through a churn. Um, and people want to, there is this movement to rediscover what does it mean to be Vedic. And this is in this context that Shankaracharya plays a very important role. He's actually part of a philosophical movement which is asking what does it mean to be Vedic. And there are two schools of thought. One is the ritual school of thought which is called the Karmakanda which is the performance of the yajnas and the samskaras like shrad, vivaha, which is to deal with the householder's life. And this is called uh, Purva Mimamsa. And uh, Shankaracharya rejects it. He's a hermit. He's not a householder, which is a radical thing because Hinduism really differentiated itself from Buddhism by uh, valuing marriage and family life over the monastic order. But what Shankaracharya does, he turns it around and says, no, the monastic order is the way to go. And he, in, in a way, in, one can't say introduces, but at least makes the Hindu monastic order an important power. And he gives value to the philosophical idea of the Upanishads, the concept of Atma, the concept of Brahma, and does not value the rituals, which is the samskaras, the 16 samskaras, the yajnas. So there is this tension between the ritual school of Hinduism or the Vedism and the philosophical school of Vedism. And Shankaracharya favors the philosophical school. Rituals and the householder's life is really the mainstream Hinduism. While Shankaracharya introduces the idea of the hermit Hindu, which was not so big in India. And I think that's the big revolution. And even today, when you look at the Hindu system, people are talking about these sants and all these celibate men, apparently leaders of Hinduism. You know, that's the kind of political space that you see, especially in the Gangetic Plain. These men wearing orange robes, um, shaving their heads and claiming that they are the true guardians of Hinduism. In a way, they trace their origin to Shankaracharya. In a way, in, in, in a complex way. You can't argue with these people, but they sort of um, are claiming this power. And you see this across India at that time because you see the Lingayat movements, you see the Veerashaiva movements, you see the... Uh, Temples in South India have mathas where people after a certain phase become celibate monks uh, and the mats play a very, very, very important role. This hermit culture of Hinduism uh, really emerges because of Shankaracharya. And I think that is something that we... Before him, I don't think it was such a big thing. Before that, the householder thing was... Manusprati is very strict about marriage. He values marriage. 
At this hermit householder divide, we rarely talk about. We we don't really realize how big that is. You remember in our temples, the gods get married. Shiva temples, Shiva gets married. Kalyana murtis. If you see South India, you'll see all these Brahmohatsaman festival is actually Tirupati getting married to the goddess. So marriage is a very important and the household life is very important in the temple culture. Well, Shankaracharya really is monastic, is very strongly monastic and he establishes a monastic order. His Char Dham is really a monastic order, which he says that is the essence of, uh, which is also the reason he was criticized by many uh, later philosophers. There's so much political uh, appropriation of his, especially in the present time when, you know, this hermit image of this lonely seeker looming above his peers, demolishing his foes, seeking, you know, transcendence in the snow-clad mountains, it all has some, uh, co- uh, you know, connotations and in, in today's politics. Could you place what this is? Yeah, this is the hermit warrior stereotype that has become popularized by uh, many politicians. Today, this whole idea of Parshuram and this whole kind of a muscular, macho, Shiva without Parvati, Ram without Sita, Krishna without Radha. When you read the Manuspriti, when you read the Dharma Shastras, marriage is central. It is the feminine energy which really um, uplifts and makes Hinduism far more powerful than the Buddhist orders and the Jain orders, which are monastic. But you're seeing Hinduism in a way becoming increasingly, or at least the popular political Hinduism, defining itself through celibate men. It's being defined through celibate men. It is not the way which is found in the Puranas. And that is why Shankaracharya becomes important because he is this powerful celibate man, not a warrior. I'm sure somebody's painting his image and making him muscular out there. Even in the Islamic world, you have this concept of the Janisars, these slave soldiers who were only uh, obedient to the Sultan, the Caliphate. So this idea of the hermit ascetic totally submitted to national welfare is a very seductive idea that you see this in the Christian world, you see this in the Islamic world, uh, it is in the Ottoman world, not the Islamic world as much as the Ottoman world. And now you see it in India, this whole idea of the hermit ascetic and you see this in TikTok videos, these young muscular boys saying that we will, we don't want to marry, we will be, what is it called? Um, Sakthlonda. I will be. I'll not be enchanted by women who are seen equated with temptation, and they'll focus on something glorious. Um, you know, this whole idea of Bharat Mata reminds us of, uh, um, you know, what is called um, courtly love in the Middle Ages, where the knight in shining armor would fight for Notre Dame, the Our Lady, which is really Mother Mary, and you see the same structure right now. It's a very religious structure where the Divine is seen as a woman, so Bharat Mata, and then you have these soldiers soldiering on, uh, sacrificing family for the greater good. Although Shankaracharya does not have any of these things. Women play a very important role in Shankaracharya's life. His mother plays a very important role. She was a widow who raised him, obviously, great difficulty in Kerala in 8th century when, uh, you know, it's early stages when the Brahmins were reaching South India. Um, he is educated by uh, Ubhaya Bharati, who is teacher talks to him about Tantra and uh, Kama Shastra. His own goddess, Sharda, is a very important goddess to him. Uh, so you find female energy a very important part of Shankara's life and everything about his writing is very gentle. There's no violence in his writing. 
uh, I mean, the fact that he was called a Prachanna Bauddha by his critics, you know, he was associated with the gentleness of Buddhism. And I think it's sad that he's being seen in many ways as this kind of a leader of military, warrior, ascetics. But then that's what history does. We take stories and we appropriate them, we transform them and change them. So I think stories do change and I think somewhere along the line people prefer warriors uh, over teachers. One question also is with all the statues that are coming up, would it become an aspect of worship? Where does it fit in with rituals if this is a sage who stood up against the ritualistic forms of Hinduism? I don't know what will happen to these statues eventually. It's very interesting. It's something that I think in our lifetime we will see because they are being treated like tourist places, right? You go there, you have Statue of Liberty and we have got these various statues of these men standing up. There's not a single statue of a woman, if you've noticed. All men, all the statues, at least till now that I am familiar with, they're all male statues standing, towering in the horizon. We'll have to wait and watch and see what happens to them. I don't think they'll be worshipped. But they are becoming these commemorative gigantic statues looming above. They are being seen as tourist places which will generate revenue through tourism. Uh, so it's very um, interesting that how uh, tourism is the new pilgrimage, right? All pilgrim spots are being turned into tourist spots. So, Deva, uh, then how do we view this sage who travelled across India and is said to have given the Hindu faith the structure that in some ways exists even now. We don't really know what Shankaracharya actually... Did he have a political agenda? I don't think so. Uh, he was coming with a spiritual idea. Uh, he obviously had a point of view, which is in later generations was politically expedient. But I think one of the things that a line that is attributed to Shankaracharya and some scholars say that it's not he didn't compose this line but his philosophy really comes can be reduced to this beautiful line called Jagat Mithya Brahma Satyam the whole world is full of delusions and only the divine knows the truth um, and I think uh, it's a very powerful statement because he he's basically saying that we cannot no human being can see that we are all united at a spiritual level uh, our ego sees the difference. It's ironical that the people who sort of celebrate him and worship him are focusing on the difference rather than on the unity and who see all forms of diversity as uh, threats and divisive and want to homogenize a nation where Shankaracharya said that it is in this diversity that you need to see the unity. So you have to celebrate the diversity. This this fragmented world with its all its various forms, within that you have to see the divine, not try to homogenize it. And it's uh, ironical that those who see him as their patron saint want to homogenize India. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tupodcast at timesinternet.in.